infection is scheduled for June and will take him to Bali. His name is Dr. Frederick Trinkline, and he's in Orlando now for a lecture and stargazing session at the Bali International Resort Club. Well, just how does one become involved in solar eclipse safaris? Dr. Trinkline. I got into uh, leading expeditions for total solar eclipses through my students some years back. Uh, as you may know, a total solar eclipse occurs uh, relatively rarely, about every 18 months, but what is even more rare is for a person to see one since the path is a very narrow one and occurs in different places on the Earth's surface. Uh, you were almost right about Bali, it's in Java. And the uh, eclipse occurs on Saturday, June 11th. And ever since uh, we went to see one with some students of mine some years back, uh, we've just had to see the next one. And people who go on these expeditions feel the same way. You build up a clientele because it's, it's a very dramatic event. It's darkness at noon. It's not a partial eclipse, it's total. It gets dark, you see the stars, the wind blows up, it gets colder, the animals do strange things, the people do strange things, because it is, in my view, one of the most dramatic demonstrations of the power of God in the universe. Now, how long have you been at this? And I saw my uh, first total solar eclipse just about 20 years ago in the state of Maine, 1963. Uh, and this coming one to Java will be our ninth. And fortunately, we've been clouded out only once. This requires a little bit of advanced preparation and study of uh, weather conditions in the area, of where to set up a site and so on. Uh, we've set them up in uh, the deserts of Africa, in the snows of Manitoba, uh, at sea, uh, on shipboard. Uh, no two eclipses are alike, and uh, the first thing you hear people say uh, as soon as the eclipse is over, where's the next one? It's a long eclipse, it's over five minutes. Uh, the maximum possible is a little over seven minutes, uh, and there will not be another one longer than that until 1991 in Mexico City. There won't be one in the United States until 2024. Okay, you've done your homework. <laughs> well, now, after the eclipse, what, what do you do? Well, uh, we go to see other areas uh, in the vicinity of the eclipse. Now, you as an astronomer... Do well, ours is not a scientific expedition. Uh, in addition to the types of uh, eclipse expeditions that I conduct, there are also uh, funded expeditions by mm -hmm. the National Science Foundations and universities consisting of three or four scientists who go there months in advance to set up and to... Uh, make preparation for certain studies of the sun, of its outer layers, of uh, what is usually also done during eclipses is to study uh, and verify Einstein's theory of relativity of the deflection of starlight as it passes the sun and so mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. So ours is not a scientific expedition in that sense. I call ours a, an expedition for the serious amateur. Okay. And there are a lot of serious amateurs in astronomy, and many of them do work that is every bit as good and scientific as people who get their way paid by some foundation. Uh, if we could just talk about some other areas um, that you're involved with, uh, Dr. Trinkline. I understand that you have written uh, a, a couple of books. I'm, yes, I'm an author of uh, physics and astronomy textbooks for Hold Reinhardt and Winston. Mm -hmm. Um, I also uh, write books in the area of the relationship between science and religion. That's interesting. The uh, 
opportunity uh, came my way some years back to travel to a number of countries and to interview the Nobel Prize winners in science and other scientific leaders about the relationship between uh, God and science. It's a very current topic because uh, it is becoming increasingly obvious to many people that the scientific method cannot answer all the questions that people have. As I have interviewed uh, many of the world's most prominent scientists, including Dr. Margaret Mead, Dr. Carl Sagan, Dr. Mm -hmm. J. Allen Hynek, mm -hmm. uh, Sir Fred Hoyle, uh, who has just come out, by the way, with a very startling book that I want to discuss at the lectures at Bali, also called Evolution from Space, okay. in which he comes out with a new theory that he completely replaces in Dr. Hoyle's mind the Darwinian theory of evolution. So basically what uh, Sir Fred Hoyle is saying is that the chances of Darwinian evolution are simply non-existent. He says one to 10 to the 40,000th power, and that therefore the only way life could have come to Earth is from outer space fully formed. Uh, it was a lecture delivered by Fred Hoyle in England last mm -hmm. year, and it's now in published form. Dr. Trinkline, thank you so very much for taking it's the time. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you. Dr. Frederick Trinkline, author, educator, astronomer. He has one final lecture scheduled for 6 o'clock tonight at the Bala Resort, and uh, he will address his book dealing with religion and science. You're listening to Evening Edition. I'm Jeanette Austin. I just want to uh, gather around and sit down. Don't know. <laughs> but these resort managers are all alike, you know, they have to, uh, you know, show their importance by telling you the master of ceremonies, no. Oh, master of ceremonies, right. They can tell jokes and warm up the audience before the, the big main speaker. Now you can get, the book is over there, God of Science, if you want to pick it up with autograph for you and everything. Four ninety-five. it's usually six ninety-five. dollars so It's four nine. special price for Valley. In case you want to go on. The yeah. Cutter's Lotion is over there, too, in case you need that. Well, that's $9.75. I don't have any nipples. Oh, five bucks. That's it. <laughs> Just went up. It's like time sharing. It keeps going up. you got to buy now. See, I told you. See, we're getting pitching them already, huh? I think you can come here in some astronomy and try to pitch you anyway. Terrible. Uh, this is getting to be like a... Uh, yeah. A, uh, I'm a, that, that's enough. I want you to think that enough. This is getting to be like a traveling show for us. This is the third year that we've done this. Now, I didn't get a chance to prep you last night, but we've done this for three years now, since the time that I was back in New York at Gurney's Inn. And the, our relationship started. We were both members of the same church, and I happened to walk in on his astronomy class. And I was signed up for astronomy. Little did I know it was going to be him. And of course, naturally, I got a that D plus <laughs> I wasn't too pleased about that. But I've been working extra credit ever since to try to bring my grade up. So I keep flying in different places, bring them out to Gurneys or wherever. But uh, Dr. Trinkwine has written, I think as you all know by now, the most widely used physics textbook in the world. Uh, the Introduction to Astronomy text that I use, and I got a D plus in, so that'll tell you about the book. And a few things in the brochures for their next eclipse in June are right over here on the, uh, on the table with Mrs. Trinkwine, and you can buy the book. So. Dr. Trinkline. Thank you, Rob. You're up to a C minus. <laughs> and depending on the applause, on the jokes especially, you can get it up to a C before the night's over. 
Uh, we're going to do this in several parts as we did last evening. We're going to start out with a lecture which hopefully will not be too dry. We're going to, to follow that with a question and answer period and the purpose of all that is to wait for the sun to go down, correction, for the earth to turn so that the sun will seem to go down and get dark enough so we can show pictures. The pictures will not be the same ones we saw last night. It will be a completely different show tonight. And, of course, we will then also have refreshments once more at that period. And then after that, weather permitting, we'll have stargazing, naked eye stargazing, and stargazing with the Celestron telescope that you see here, which is a very powerful instrument indeed. Rob has been checking out the thing by looking at everybody's window this afternoon. <laughs> and he said, very surprisingly, things are upside down. You didn't catch that in class the time we were explaining that, Rob. It has to be upside down, otherwise not an astronomical telescope. Now, the questions I want to address this evening will become more philosophical than the ones we had last night. And I want to talk, first of all, about how large the universe is. Then we will talk about what the universe is made of. The third question will be, what is happening to the universe? In other words, the future of uh, objects in space. And we will end up with questions of how life began in the universe and finally, what this all means to you and me. I mean, if we don't have an application at the end, why listen to anything or watch any kind of television program if it doesn't do something to you in some way? So the first question is, how large is the universe? Now, the question is a difficult one, obviously, because it first means that we have to talk about how distances in space are established. Yesterday, we had a little demonstration of how big things are and in what scale on that little Earth that we had here and the moon over by the intersection of the sidewalk, where the nearest stars would be. And I said on the scale that we had here, with the Earth about a foot across, the star next to the sun on that scale would be in China. Now, that gives us a little bit of a handle on distances in space. But it does not tell us anything about how those distances are established. As I've told a number of people during conversations today, one thing wrong with education in the United States is that people are too gullible. We claim to live in a scientific age, and yet our students, and I know this from many years of teaching at all levels, our students today are more gullible than they were in the Middle Ages. And the reason is that we have textbooks. In the Middle Ages, they didn't have textbooks since printing wasn't invented yet, and students had to sit there and write notes. And when you write something, somehow it doesn't seem as absolutely true as if you read it in the printed page. And I am always amazed in writing my own textbooks that people believe what I write in a book much more easily than when I tell them the same thing in class without a book. I can write a page longhand and put it on the board longhand and they will take it as the professor's notes and ideas. But I publish the same page with CBS and it comes out worldwide and people will quote my own book back to me and say this is true because it's printed in a book. We live in a brainwashed bookish world. A scientist prints something 
and people believe it more on the authority of his name than on the evidence he's presenting. We say that in the Middle Ages, people believed things blindly. We believe things more blindly today than they ever did. If I would quote Einstein to you, you'd say, well, that must be true. And you're making two mistakes. First, you're believing it because I said Einstein said it. And secondly, you're believing me in quoting Einstein correctly. We simply do not have the time, it seems, to check out our information the way we ought to. And I'm going to tell you in the beginning now that one of the implications that we're going to mention way at the end of this lecture, one reason I run around the country doing this is because I feel we are in a critical time of our history that unless we educate the American public to be more informed in science and technology, this nation may not endure because it will be in the hands of a few specialists who will make all the decisions for us. They'll decide whether to launch nuclear missiles. They'll decide whether to have nuclear power plants. They'll decide whether we should curb overpopulation. They'll make all the decisions and the citizens who should be making the decisions in a democracy are not well enough informed because in school they steered away from the difficult science subjects and took something easier instead just to graduate. Now I sound a little aroused there, but this is exactly how I feel about it. And if you go back home and say the guy was mad, you got it right. I'm, there was a TV show or a movie one time way back when a guy got in, up and opened the window and yelled out into the street, I said, and he said, I'm, well, why did he go? I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. That's what he said about TV. And I'm saying the same thing about textbook publishing. And one reason I can say that is because I've been involved for 15 years with the world's largest publisher of science textbooks. I know how those things are done and I know how critical it is to teach science correctly and how often a publisher will say to me, well, we don't have time in the textbook. Every page costs money. We haven't got time and space to say those things that you're saying. We've got to outline it and cut it back and summarize it. And it comes out sounding like the guy who wrote the book knows everything. And teachers tell their kids, if you can repeat this material in a test, then you know science. No, you don't know science at all, because science is not a book of facts. Science is a method. Science is not facts. There are no facts in science. A fact is something that's true. And everything in a science book is only tentatively true. It's only true to the next edition. It's only true as the next experiment. You go into the laboratory and you do something that doesn't check out with present theory, and you may have disproved the theory. One scientist told me, a Nobel Prize winner, he said, no amount of work I do will ever prove a theory, but one thing I do can disprove it. And this is nowhere true more than it is in measuring distances in space. How in the world would you go about figuring out how far away that star is that we're looking at as soon as it gets dark? How in the world would you figure out how far away that star is? The best you could probably come up with is to say, well, a renowned astronomer said that that star is 10 light years away. That doesn't tell us a thing about how he established that distance. I'm here to tell you tonight that the distances that we quote so glibly in space are all open to question. 
There was a convention in Washington, D.C. recently, and some of the most noted astronomers in the world were there. And one astronomer stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that everything we're talking about in this convention and seminar could be wrong. And a fellow got up in the audience, a PhD in his field, and he said, Dr. Gingrich, you mean even the fact that the stars are in the sky could be wrong? I have the quotation with me. I have the article if you want to look at it later, as it, was come, as it came out in the New York Times. And Dr. Gingrich says, yes, we're not even sure the stars are up there. It's all circumstantial evidence. It could all be wrong. And I make a big point of that because people are too easily overcome, overawed by what some famous person in his field says. You shouldn't feel inadequate. You should always ask the person, explain it to me. How do you come to this conclusion? And if he cannot explain it to you, he does not really understand it. He's just using big words. Einstein said one time, whenever we don't understand something, we sit down and try to explain it to each other. If you cannot explain it to another person, I don't care how erudite the field is, you have not got a handle on it. Well, that's a long way around of telling you that when I say that that star that we're going to look at later is 10 light years away, there is a certain technique that was used to establish that distance, which could someday be proved wrong. The method that is used is to use the parallax of the star. Now, what does that mean? Parallax means that if you look at that star now and look at it again six months from now, it will not be in the same place. Not because the star has moved, but because we've moved. Six months from now, we're going to be on the opposite side of our orbit. Now, to get some appreciation of that, I'd like everybody to hold up their right index finger and look at this screen. Hold up your fingers. Look at this. You don't think we have audience participation? Get this into your next news release. Now, close your left eye and get that finger to appear against the screen. Now, without moving your finger, close your right eye and open your left one. What happened to your finger? It moved. Did it move? It seemed to move. It seemed to move, didn't it? Why did it seem to move? Because you're looking at it from two different positions. That's called parallax. Now, if you know the distance between your two eyes, which is a little different for different people, normal person about two inches, and you measure how far your finger jumped on the screen, I can give you an equation of trigonometry that will tell you how far from your eyes your finger was. Now, do the same thing again, and this time bring your finger closer. What happens this time? It moved more. In other words, there's an inverse relationship between the apparent motion of your finger against the screen and the actual distance of your finger from your eyes. This is exactly how the distance to the stars is determined. Your two eyes are two places in the Earth's orbit. 
You take a picture of the star now, that's your left eye. You wait for six months, and you take a picture again with your right eye. Now, what is the screen in space? The screen is very distant space, very far away stars. When you take pictures of stars, some of the stars seem to jump back and forth when taken six months apart. This is called stellar parallax. And until this was discovered in the 19th century, it was not really positive that the Earth was in orbit around the sun. I said last night the phases of Venus were the first indication, but the first mathematical measurement of the Earth's orbit was the parallax of the nearby stars. And by measuring that parallax, you can tell how far we are from the sun. Now using that scale, I can tell you that the nearest star to the Earth is 25 trillion miles away. That's 25 and 12 zeros. That's a lot of miles. That is so many miles we cannot imagine it. There is nothing on Earth with that many zeros. The national debt isn't even close yet. It's getting there, but it's not there yet. 25 trillion miles. That is so far that if that star would stop shining right now, you would still see the light coming for 4.3 years, traveling at 186,000 miles a second. Light goes around the Earth seven times per second. Now how far will that light go in over four years? A long, long ways. The nearest star is that far away. That's the nearest star. We have no idea whether that star is there right now. If it would go out tonight, it would still shine for 4.3 years. And everybody could look at it and say, there's the star. We're lucky in Florida we can see it here tonight because north of Florida you cannot see it. It's Alpha Centauri, southern constellation of the Centaur, and is our nearest star. It's not a very brilliant one, but it's the closest one. After the sun, that is. Well, let's stretch our imagination a little bit. Let's go beyond Alpha Centauri, 4.3 light years, and use the parallax method, and keep going outward farther and farther. How far out can we see stars? Well, it happens, as you just noticed with your finger, that the farther away your finger goes, the less it seems to jump. And there comes a time when the stars are so far away, there is no more parallax. And what we will then say is that star is now at the limit of the parallax method. Only a few hundred of the billions of stars can be measured with parallax. Beyond that, until about 1920, we had no idea how far the rest of the stars were from the Earth. Until a brilliant amateur astronomer by the name of Henrietta Leavitt came along and through an absolute stroke of genius came up with a new way of measuring the distance to stars. Henrietta Leavitt found, by working at Harvard Observatory as an assistant, that many stars in the sky vary in brightness. If you look at certain stars, and I'll show you one tonight in the constellation Cepheus, if you look at it tonight, and then again tomorrow night, it will not have the same brightness, even if it's clear. The reason is that the star is changing. It's constantly changing every few days, brighter and dimmer, and brighter and dimmer. Why, if you were here last night, the correct answer is God only knows, remember? We don't know. 
why it's varying in brightness, but it does vary over a period of a few days. In studying a great many stars of that kind, Henrietta Leavitt discovered that there is a connection between the time it takes a star to vary in brightness and its distance from the Earth by looking at stars for which we knew the distances and measuring their variability, she made a graph and found a relationship between the distance of a star and its variability. And that is now known as the Henrietta Leavitt relationship. And by extending it into far space, we are able to use that method to measure the distances of stars to millions of light years, millions. In about 1920, a picture was taken of an object in space, which was thought at the time to be in our own local universe. Well, local is only one in the universe. And it was discovered that there were variable stars there that made it seem like that system they were looking at was a million light years away. A million light years. Light takes a million years to get here from that object. People said it's impossible because the universe is not that large. The size of the universe in 1920 was only about 80,000 light years. The entire universe was believed to be that size. Light would take 80,000 years to go from one end to the other. That's a long time. But when that object was discovered and with Henrietta Leavitt's method, it was found to be a million and a half or so light years away, it blew the whole astronomical world out of the water because what we had discovered was another universe. Well, what would they call it? Well, we call ours the Milky Way. Are we going to call it another Milky Way? Well, they named it, after a meeting or two, a galaxy. What is a galaxy besides a Ford car? A galaxy is a universe. And we now, well, the word means Milky. Galaxy is just a fancy name for Milky Way. In science, we take ordinary words and make Latin words out of them, and then it sounds like we know what we're talking about. So galaxy means Milky Way. So they found another one. Well, they said, let's call ours our galaxy and make it a big G. <laughs> and let's call the other one a galaxy with a little g. And that's what they did. And since it was in the constellation Andromeda, it was called the Andromeda Galaxy. Now the question arose, are there more? If we want to find more, we need bigger telescopes. So who had a lot of money to build bigger telescopes in the 20s? Rockefeller. So they went to Mr. John Rockefeller and said, you give away money for a lot of things. How about building the largest telescope in the world? And at that time, 1928, the cost of the telescope was only $6 million. Today, that wouldn't even launch a shuttle. But in 1928, it built the world's largest telescope for the simple reason that we wanted to see how far out we could look. It took 20 years to build that instrument. The mirror was poured in New York at Corning, and it cracked. Then they poured another one, and it did not crack. It took 10 years to cool, slowly, so it wouldn't crack. And they transported it on top of Mount Palomar, and it became, for many years, until the Russians built a bigger one a few years ago, the largest telescope on Earth, for the simple purpose of looking out to see how big the universe is. And to their great surprise, they found, as soon as the instrument went into operation in 1948, that there were literally millions 
of more galaxies, and that the million and a half light year one in Andromeda was really one of the closest ones. It is now called the Andromeda Galaxy member of the local neighborhood. See, we use human terms. We're in this local neighborhood, and there are maybe 20 galaxies in the local neighborhood. Now beyond that, there is a lot of nothing, and pretty soon we get to the next neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. And there are maybe a hundred in the next neighborhood, and so on, out and out. How far out? Well, by using the Henrietta Leavitt method, a limit was reached, because pretty soon the galaxies were so far away, you could not see individual variable stars anymore. So how do we know how far away those are? Comes a new theory. All of these are open to question. Every one of these methods could be totally wrong. If I could show it to be wrong, I could maybe get the Nobel Prize. Let's try and do that this evening. Now, the next method that was used was designed by Edwin Hubble. Hubble happened to be the manager of the world's largest telescope on Mount Palomar. Edwin P. Hubble was a master observer, and he took pictures of millions of galaxies, some of which are now many millions of light years away. And he said, I'm going to come up with a new theory, and that is that I'm going to assume, assume that the galaxies in space, millions of galaxies, have an average size. And therefore, when I look at those galaxies through the telescope, or more accurately, when I photograph them through a telescope, because telescopes are not for looking through. A telescope is for taking pictures. You simply cannot see enough through a telescope. You take time exposures. You only look through it to aim it or to show it off to tourists. And so Edwin Hubble said, the galaxies have an average size. And therefore, when I photograph one, and it looks small, it therefore is farther away than one that looks large. That's simple. If a person stands in front of me here, he looks bigger than a person standing back there because I assume that human beings have an average size. Now, it could be there's a giant standing back there, and I look at him and he looks so big that I think he's next to me. But there are not that many giants, and so I say that's just kind of an oddity Therefore, since people are the same average size, I can judge their distances by their apparent size when I look at them. Edwin Hubble then did that, and he looked out with his thing and took photographs and found the average sizes to vary. And therefore, since he knew the distance to the ones that looked large through the Henrietta Leavitt method, he used the averaging method to come up with the distances to the faraway ones. You're following me? Should we have a break for wine and cheese here? No, no. <laughs> okay. And he came up with the startling conclusion that the smallest ones, and I'm going to show you some later, that could be photographed with the American instrument were several billion light years away. Or to quote I, Carl Sagan, billion light years away. I have to practice that. How many billions more will there be? Well, what do we need? Another bigger telescope. How can we afford one now that Rockefeller's gone? We can go to the U.S. government. We can go to Uncle Sam and say the National Science Foundation should build a bigger telescope. Well, that's being done. We're building a telescope now that will be launched into space on the shuttle in 1985 that will look 15 times farther than the farthest telescope can look now. 
15 times, and at the present time, we're looking out about 10 billion light years. That's 15 times 10, 150 billion light years. Question, will we see anything? Or will we have looked past the edge of the universe? I have a theory that's totally irrefutable. And that is that God will not disappoint us. He will make more galaxies if necessary so that we have something to look at and the administration will not be embarrassed. <laughs> that cannot be disproved because obviously we cannot look out there at the present time. That's my democracy of galaxies theory with divine help. I am convinced that's true. I can't prove it, therefore I have to be convinced and it's a part of my value and belief system which I have a right to have. I tell that in astronomical conventions and they kind of smile. But smiling is a lot better than somebody jumping down my throat and saying, I can show you that that's wrong. Because a scientist loves nothing more than to destroy another person's theory. A scientist gets more kicks out of destroying another guy's theory than coming up with his own. Because he knows when he comes up with his own, somebody else will jump down his throat. That's the strength of science. Open, free inquiry which I suggest to you we do not have in this country. Now you've already, if you have to leave early this evening, got the two out of the three conclusions I'm going to reach. We do not have a good educational system because of our method of textbooks, and we do not have free inquiry in this country because of embarrassing state education laws. I could not say some of the things I'm going to tell you this evening in a public school classroom. I know, I've tried because some people feel that to say what I'm going to tell you, even to say that God is making galaxies in space, could cost me my job, because I'm mixing state and church. Isn't that ridiculous? So we cannot inquire freely into the nature of the universe in a system that is fettered by laws. Now, people will raise all kinds of objections and say, oh, if you let free inquiry go in the schools, every religious fanatic will have a chance to air his views. Well, as I read the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, everybody is allowed in this country to air his views. We even give him a soapbox on the corner. If you don't want to listen to him, you don't have to. But why should a teacher be told that he cannot say a certain thing in the classroom? Is that going to embarrass somebody? He's not requiring the students to learn it. He's telling them this is his opinion. You cannot express your opinion freely as long as those laws exist for certain levels of education. They do not exist for me in college. That's where we say students are old enough to make up their own minds. In Europe, they find our system embarrassing. In Russia, they told Billy Graham a few years ago, don't come and talk to us about freedom because you don't even have freedom of education in the United States because you can't mention God in class. And Billy Graham said that was the most embarrassing thing that happened to him in Russia. How is he going to defend that? Well, that's the second. I wasn't going to say these things till the very end. How far out have we seen now? There's one other yardstick, and then we'll get to another question. The last yardstick for measuring distances in space is a thing called the redshift. Now, the redshift does not mean that everybody's becoming a commie. The redshift means that if you look at the sun or any other star or any light source in space with a spectroscope, with a prism, 
with a piece of glass that splits the light into its colors, it not only tells you what the substance is made of, but it also tells you how fast it's moving. In case you've ever been caught in a speed trap, you may have wondered, how can the fellow in that squad car say you were going 65? Well, the way he can say it is exactly the same way we can tell how far away the distant stars are by a thing called the Doppler shift. Christian Doppler found out that when an object is moving, it changes color. If I would take that lamp that looks white now and move it away fast enough, it would look red. If I moved it toward me fast enough, it would look blue. If I move toward the light, it would look blue. If I move away from the light, it looks red. All the policeman has to do is to fire a, a beam of light at you in your car, and he can tell by whether the light has shifted to the blue or red how fast you were going. Because if it looks very red, you were doing 65. If it's just a little pinkish, you're all red. Now, even if he's colorblind, it works because he's got the numbers painted right on his instrument. He doesn't have to go by the color shades. He just looks at the numbers. That's called the Doppler shift. The same thing happens in space. We look at galaxies, and some of them are red-shifted. That means they are redder looking than the average galaxies. And the redder they look, the faster they're moving away. That's a theory. That's Hubble's redshift theory. And Hubble found out there's a relationship between how fast the object is shifting and how small it is. And I've already showed you that the assumption is that the smaller the object, the farther away it is. And the Hubble relationship says that the redshift corresponds to the distance, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the basis for the theory called the Big Bang. If you backtrack all the galaxies of the billions that we have redshifted in space now, backwards in time, they all come together in one big clump. And I'll get into this a little bit later when we talk about the origin of the universe. The Big Bang theory is based on the Doppler redshift. And it says that all these objects are rushing away at a certain speed, and that speed depends on their distance. The farther ones out are far out because they were fired out faster at creation. And the slower ones did not get fired as fast, therefore they're still nearby. Now there is one redshifted object in space that was recently discovered that is by far the farthest out thing that has ever been photographed, and it's called a quasar. Quasar is not a television set. A quasar is a distant. You'd be surprised in how many things in everyday life we use astronomical terms to sell things. I suggest that you name these buildings Antares, Aldebaran, Orion, and you'll have a lot more people coming out to look at them. When I watched Ben Hur the other night, did you know that the four horses in the chariot race are named after stars that we're going to look at tonight? The Arab that Ben Hur ran into in his tent said, Ah, come to me, Antares. Come to me, Aldebaran. He named them after the Arabian stars. Well, anyhow, a quasar is a new word for quasi-stellar object. What does that mean? It means it looks like a star, but it is so far away that it could not possibly be a star. If it were as far away as its redshift indicates, we couldn't see it. So the conclusion is that it must be something much brighter than a galaxy, and yet, the most distant thing and fastest moving object that we have ever photographed. Now, of course, there is a limit to how fast things can move. And that's the next part of our discussion this evening. I don't want to stop after each of the three parts, 
But I do want to stop after this next one for a question or two because somebody may not be following the line of reasoning. Before we go on to the next part, which is what is happening to the universe and what that is based on, I want to recite a little poem. This is not original with me. The poem was written oh, about 60 years ago when the theory of relativity was still being questioned. And one way to help remind people of what Einstein really said in that theory is to recite this little limerick. And it goes like this. There was once a young lady called Bright who could travel much faster than light. She went out one night, oh, correction, she went out one day in her relative way and returned on the previous night. I'll repeat that poem. It's very famous in scientific classrooms. There was once a young lady called Bright who could travel much faster than light. She went out one day in her relative way and returned on the previous night. Now what that poem is saying is that the speed of light is the limit of motion. Einstein became world famous during a total solar eclipse in 1919. This is another reason you should join us in June. You might get the Nobel Prize yourself for something you see that day on June 11th. Einstein had predicted that during the next total solar eclipse, starlight, and you see the stars in the daytime at noon, that starlight is bent as it passes near the sun. In other words, if he took a picture of the eclipse with a star next to it, and then took a picture of that same star six months later, the star would not be in the same place. It would have moved for the same, sort of same reason that your finger moves against the screen. It would have apparently moved. Why? Because one part of Einstein's theory of relativity is that gravity does not exist. I've heard people thanking God for the theory of gravity. I hate to disrupt them because they're thanking God, but it must embarrass God because gravity does not exist according to Einstein. Gravity is an illusion. Newton didn't know what it was. He made the word up. And so people didn't question it. They said, oh, it must be gravity. That doesn't mean he knew what it was. He gave it a new name. But whatever it is, Einstein said it doesn't exist. It's an illusion of acceleration. And the same illusion that makes people think the Earth is pulling them down pulls the starlight too. Now that's a radical idea because gravity is only supposed to pull on objects, not on light beams which have no mass. Well, during the 1919 eclipse, the amount of bending of starlight was exactly what Einstein predicted in his equation. And so it was definitely established, at least for that time, that Einstein was correct, that his theory and prediction were right, that gravity is not what we thought it was, and that whatever it was, it affects starlight as much as it does people standing on the Earth and he became an overnight world sensation. Now, the reason I bring that up is because Einstein in the same theory also said that everything in the universe is governed by the speed of light, that nothing can go faster than it, that you can change anything into it. You and I are just 
lumpy beams of light. In an atom bomb, you take ordinary matter and change it into starlight. At Brookhaven National Laboratory, I have watched them take starlight and change it back into lumps. It's entirely theoretical feasible, theoretically feasible to take a ham sandwich and beam it to India the way they do on Star Trek. It's all within possibility of Einstein's theory. Everything is governed by the speed of light. Everything can be changed into light. Everything can be made from light. My second religious theory for this evening is that when God said on the first day, let there be light, he made everything. The word light is not correctly translated into English. It means energy. Light is a form of energy, but the word in Hebrew means more than visible light. God said, let there be everything. And you certainly can't argue about that. Who else could have made it? No scientist on earth has a theory about how anything got here from nothing. So, where is the universe going? If the redshift theory is correct, the universe is getting bigger and bigger and will eventually disappear into nothingness. It will die, as one scientist of MIT recently said at a convention, with a whimper. The universe began with a bang and it will die with a whimper. It will just fade away. Everything will be so far from everything else that gravity as such will no longer exist and nothing can occur any longer. But there are other scientists who believe that this is not true, that if the universe began with a bang, there will come a time when this expansion will slow down and gravity will take over again and the universe will contract once more and disappear in a tight wad of matter called a black hole. Now, the man who made up the black hole theory is Stephen Hawking at Cambridge University. I admire him a great deal for, t for several reasons, not because he only has such a brilliant mind, but because he has done a magnificent job of overcoming physical and other handicaps. Stephen Hawking cannot walk, he cannot stand, he cannot speak intelligibly, and he is obviously the victim of a very terrible and disabling disease, but in spite of all that,